Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, June 2nd, and we're talking about a company that makes clothes for doctors and nurses. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by longtime fool and fellow scrubs fan, Anand Chakvalu. Anand, how's it going? Doing well. Uh, to be clear, fan scrubs the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Bill Lawrence fan, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I'll confess, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about figs. This is a company that makes scrubs. Um, and throughout the prep process, the outlining process for this episode, I had the Laszlo Bain Superman song playing in the background of my in, in my head, you know, the, the theme song from Scrubs, the TV show. Nice. Right. <laughs> uh, which is nice because I haven't heard it in a while. And I, and I feel like that was that was a show I always loved as a kid. Um, more a fan of the show than the clothing, but that's because I'm not in the medical industry. A lot of folks uh, obviously need it for their jobs. And we're going to be talking about a company today that really is squarely focused on the market of uh, Scrubs, of kind of like daily workwear for medical professionals, um, and and maybe a business that would have been easily dismissed by a lot of people, but Anand probably belongs at least on the watch list because it's such an interesting company. Yeah, spoiler alert, you're going to actually have to contain my enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> shockingly, I was shocked once I looked into this how much I, I do enjoy this company. Yeah. And so let, let's dig right into it. Um, the, the mission for this business is to celebrate, empower, and serve those who serve others. Uh, that, that, that's vague enough that it can be kind of hard to get a sense of what it is precisely that they are doing. Um, at core, Anand, this is kind of a lifestyle brand that is uh, serving healthcare workers. Exactly. They're looking to become a premium brand that elevates something people traditionally didn't pay much for. Hospital scrubs, right? Uh, healthcare worker uniforms, right? So like Starbucks did for coffee or Lululemon did for workout clothes or Peloton did for workout equipment. That's what they're trying to do with scrubs. Um, at this point, believe it or not, around 85% of medical professionals buy their own uniforms versus the hospitals. Uh, I would have thought that. Uh, my wife is um, you know, a former healthcare professional and she, she, she claimed that uh, she got out probably right around when she would have been... Uh, draining our bank accounts, uh, buying figs. Um. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting on and in doing prep for the show, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a, a relative or a family friend or anything like that, that works in healthcare. And I had no basis for that number you threw out there of how, like, do people generally use scrubs that are provided by the hospital that are then cleaned on site? Are they tending to buy their own scrubs? I was surprised by that number and that it was as high as it is. Yeah, it was, it was, very shocking. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, not to get into like the distribution and stuff. And I was, I was asking her to kind of confirm like, well, how are you buying the scrubs? And a lot of times it would be once a year, there'd be kind of an expo at the hospital where all the different providers would come and you'd kind of go and sort through the racks like TJ Maxx style. <laughs> and that, that was the kind of thing uh, that they were doing. Uh, so you can kind of see like why their tagline is, why wear scrubs when you can hashtag wear figs? They're really just saying, look, there's a better way. Um, and then, spoiler alert, then they're going to expand out even beyond that. Yeah. And, and I think the the quick thesis for this company is no one has really given this space a lot of attention. We're coming in here with something that is uh, specifically direct to consumer, really geared towards the audience it is intended to serve and designed for the people that are going to be wearing it. Um and and frankly, maybe a little bit more flattering than most of the options that are currently out there, uh, because I think scrubs tend to have the reputation of being kind of boxy when it comes to clothing. Exactly. And hey, you know, you've got folks with pretty decent disposable income, at least above average in the healthcare worker space, you've got a growing industry and you've got, hey, you have to buy since you have to buy your own and it's your work clothes. I mean, how much do we spend on just our, you know, our button up shirts, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. And and COVID's given us a little bit of a breather on that, I think, because we've been working from home and we, we happen to work for a casual business. But, you know, those are those are non-negotiable expenses for or, or things that you just got got to have if that's if that's a space, if that's a uniform for the job you're in. Right. And and what kind of makes them salivate when you're as you're reading through that S1, you you kind of you kind of get it, especially remember they were they were founded, which isn't long ago, but 2013 
where uh, some of this with the more bricks and mortars were even more so, you know, in our research, there's more websites and, and things that we found since then. But basically, they think their competition stinks. And they're, what they're trying to disrupt is that old school clothing makers who sell those commoditized boxy scrubs that aren't built for comfort or fashion. Uh, you know, they were and they're competing against folks who use wholesaling and traditional bricks and mortar retailing or unoptimized online executions. Uh, and these are companies that don't have great margins, which kind of keeps you from innovating and marketing. And and then they're, they also are big on um, talking about being purpose driven. Uh, and how they kind of describe themselves, right, is we have built the largest DDC, uh, direct-to-consumer, platform in healthcare apparel, leading the industry in the shift to digital. Makes sense, right? Yeah, and and I think that that's really just catching on to or, or taking advantage of a trend that we have seen be so successful for retailers. Uh, we, we see increasingly uh, a lot of these strong up-and-coming uh, retailers out there and, and consumer brands out there have a much closer relationship to their customers. They own that relationship much more. They're not nearly as reliant on third-party platforms to drive their sales, which is great because it helps them build these loyalty programs. Exactly. And, you know, 2020, maybe the, the year of e-commerce, a, a lot of, you know, in, in a big way, they're doing that and getting that, that real feel for their customers. Uh, you know, they tout things like the proprietary... I don't even know how to pronounce it. Fion X fabric technology. Um, think like, you know, like an Under Armour would, would kind of talk about it. And they talk about, hey, we want to make these for hospital workers. Just like people spend so much time with athletes. You think of Under Armour or Nike or Lululemon, uh, all doing that kind of thing. Um, and they, they focus on the, that social consciousness. They've got the Threads for Threads program, which is similar to like the I think just about every kind of new direct-to-consumer one has this. Not to not to diminish it, but you know, Tom's has that. I think Warby Parker does it. Where hey, you buy a pair of eyeglasses, we we donate a pair of eyeglasses, and they do the same with um, scrubs to to other countries that maybe don't have the uh, the the income to be be purchasing these things. Or a lot of folks, um, and they you know call their customers. Uh, this is one of the most grating things for me. Uh, Awesome humans. That's how they call customers, uh, which is cool. It's just one of those where you really have to to toe that needle in their in your branding. Yeah, um, and and that's one of the realities of being kind of more of a lifestyle brand is you always see these efforts to uh, create kind of catch all names, you know, or mm-hmm. or like create a sense of identity amongst your customers. Um, we do it here at the Fool, right? We call ourselves Fools, and and that's that's a big part of how we position ourselves. Um, you know what what I think. I can get behind when I hear something like awesome humans is they clearly like delighting the customers that they reach and they are looking to elevate people, make people feel awesome. Um, if, if you haven't seen any of their products, you haven't been on their website, you haven't seen their digital footprint. Uh, it, I think the best way to describe it is it looks like a very millennial friendly brand. I think about half of their customers are in that 18 to 35 bucket. And it has the look and feel of a digital first company, very sleek designs, but some of the things that I mentioned before about intentionally designing stuff for their market, one of the things they pointed out was they intentionally designed pockets into some of their scrubs for wedding rings. They realized that that was something that they had right. to solve as a major problem. And I think one of their customer interviews said that they were on a, they were talking to a doctor who was on like his fifth wedding ring because he kept losing the wedding rings or you know tying it into the waistband of his existing scrubs. Uh, so just being a little bit more purposeful in the clothing that's being designed for people who need to wear it every day, you could easily see that becoming a competitive advantage. Uh, Anand, you could also easily see it being something that gets mimicked as the industry catches on. Absolutely. And, and that does kind of, I, I can't think of another word, but rings true where I remember my wife would always be struggling with what to do with the, with the wedding ring. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like any, uh, any of the premium brands, the imitation uh, can you can you keep that brand and can you keep people coming and, and as you grow and and keep those margins because they are very very expensive scrubs compared to to just the regular old Cherokee or Dickies type of scrubs they are and they're very much positioning themselves you know up market and and you see that like i, I think purpose driven companies can get away with that a little bit more because it's it's lifestyle brand it's a purpose driven company you talked about some of the the kind of uh, charitable efforts that they have um, 
when when that's the story and and the product is really great, people are generally willing to pay up. Um, it's it's not going to come as any surprise. I think we've said scrubs about 14 times so far in this podcast. Um, the vast majority of the money right now is coming from these scrub lines that they have. Uh, I think it's like 13 of their their core scrub lines make up over 80% of their sales. But they have kind of an interesting model where they have their staple line, but then they also create specific events that are able to drive traffic to the site and engage their customers. Yeah, they do drops roughly every week. I was shocked that it was weekly. Uh, you know, so you're thinking like different styles, different colors. Obviously, if 82% are from that core, right? These are these are incremental, but they also once you once you're back on the site, ah, oh, we're on the platform, maybe you you buy one of the core offerings too, right? And then what they're trying to do otherwise is kind of that kind of being that lifestyle kind of thing, which their definition of lifestyles a, a little right now it's still pretty uh, pretty healthcare focused where it's lab coats under scrubs which could you know just like an undershirt under scrubs which could be worn outside the hospital uh, outerwear activewear loungewear compression socks and you know stuff like masks shields uh, footwear uh, so they, they've got that as their kind of hey if it's super comfortable and you love wearing at work and you can also find things that people would wear outside of work that's a that's a growth opportunity. Yeah, and and it's it's kind of an interesting founder story with this company because uh, what what I was surprised by is uh, some like some like slight healthcare exposure for them, but not hardcore healthcare experience in the way that you would traditionally think about it. Um, but still, founders that kind of identified a pain point and realized that they could come up with a solution that was far better than uh, what was currently out there, and those founders still at the helm for this business. Yeah. Co-CEOs, uh, uh, Trina Spear, or well, actually, let's start with Heather Hassan, uh, who prior to, to the 2013 launch, uh, she started her first company at age 22 and run that for seven years. Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing differing things on whether it was a high-end uh, handbag line or whether they made neckties or maybe both, but either way, in the fashion realm. Um, and then Trina Spear uh, was an associate at Blackstone Group. So she was doing Wall Street stuff. Um, and how it kind of started is because I, I was looking for that that founder story of I was a healthcare professional and my scrubs were itchy and boxy and and then I, I once I realized their backgrounds I was like oh that's why I haven't seen the story but then <laughs> but halfway through the um, or what well, I don't know a few dozen pages through the S one you you see the letter and you see that Heather Hassan had coffee with a friend who was a healthcare professional and the scrubs were awful and boxy and, you know, and then it's hard to get them at places because the, the bricks and mortar shops, they would close at 5 p.m. And if you've got a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift, well, when are you going to get these scrubs, right? Um, so then eventually she she was introduced to, uh, to Trina Spear with a, from a mutual friend and then they partnered up and they... And then they started going. Yeah, and what's what's cool is they're. I, I love getting into the founder story and getting a couple of examples there of like clear passion and metal and just like really like wanting to be in this, putting in the work to create something really big. And there are stories of them going to hospitals, going to care facilities, and setting up you know booths where they knew that you know doctors and nurses were going to be shifting their mm -hmm. uh, switching their shifts. And uh, they would set up with free coffee, and and Smart. basically like wait for people to come by, and oh by the way, you know here are our scrubs, and and start to kind of create those uh, more grassroots relationships with people. Also working in the expos and and doing things like that for for healthcare uh, products. Um, but there there is a lot of that to this story, even though they aren't you know healthcare workers that were necessarily solving a problem, they personally were experiencing a lot. And frankly, as an investor, kind of like it because. Uh, that that's where you get that. Hey, you're not just focused on the healthcare space. That's you know they're quickly already thinking about expansion in other places, and and then you've got that you know with Trina with the Wall Street kind of experience of just and you see it with as we get as we'll get into the financials and things like that. This is at least from what I've seen, just operationally and and game plan, really really well run company. Yeah, let's let's dive right into that rather than wait yeah. because I mean because the numbers are really impressive. Uh, so the top line for for 2020 uh, net revenue was 263 million, which grew 138 percent year over year. 
Um, I don't I don't spend a ton of time uh, in in the you know conventional retail space uh, or in the consumer goods space. I tend to leave that for Emily Flippin with with industry focus because she does such a good job with it. Um, I don't think you typically see growth rates like that in this industry. <laughs> you don't. I mean, I keep coming back to SaaS. You don't always see that in SaaS this past year with a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and 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 what's what's incredible is you know to even further that that SaaS comparison, gross margins for this business seventy two percent, which are, that's incredibly high for the industry. Yeah, it, I was talking with our Dan Kaplinger, who was uh, you know our our uh, our cohort <laughs> right on on Twitter, and he was saying. I don't know if there are any even premium lifestyle brands. He kind of looked at Lululemon and Yeti and and Tiffany. They were all in the 50s to low 60s. And then when we when you do look at SaaS companies, Zoom is 60. Remember, Figs is at 72 percent. Zoom is at 69 percent. Uh, CrowdStrike's at 74 percent, and and uh, Salesforce is at 74 percent. So it's right in there with SaaS companies right now, at least. And and not surprisingly, with gross margins like that, even though it may not necessarily be the company's priority to be profitable right now, they are, which just speaks to how much cash is left over after they're done making the product. I mean, you, to find a company that's growing over 100% and, and get profitability is crazy. And then for them to be making physical goods that have real cost of goods sold, amazing. Amazing. And, and I guess for them, really, like the upfront costs of creating their designs, figuring out what they wanted to do in fabric, doing, doing the development there to create something that feels differentiated is a lot of where that upfront cost is going to be. But w- once you've figured a lot of that stuff out, the core inputs aren't that expensive. No, very, very fair. But still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and, and I say that as a strength. I mean, uh, you know, right. it's, it's something where as long as you can maintain the pricing power that you have, um, you, you're going to maintain those margins, you know, because the input costs aren't going to go dramatically up unless they start going into some product lines that alter their cost structure a little bit. Um, and, and especially when you consider, like, just looking at what's going on with them, with their cost to acquire customers, we're seeing them benefit tremendously from the scale they're operating on. Yeah, they uh, they're talking about going from $101 to acquire a customer in 2018 down to just $39 in 2020. So you're down like 60%. Um, and that's because of brand awareness and word of mouth kicking in. Um, so to, to put that $39 cost to acquire in perspective, customers are spending $215 with them in the first year. And then, you know, usually in, in any type of business where you're doing a cost to acquire a customer, you, you kind of take a bath at first, right? And then you're hoping that it pays off over the long term with over lifetime value. You know, maybe in the second or third time they come back to the site or in the second year, but they're profitable from the first purchase. Like if you take their their contribution to profit, which is kind of the, the gross profit minus some other direct costs, and you, you take that over the cost to acquire, they're at 1.3. So meaning if they spend $100 in, in marketing or advertising, they get back $130 from that first sale. Yeah. And, and it's hard to argue with any investment you would make in a business when those are the numbers that you're able to put up with your customer acquisition costs and how quickly you're able to be repaid. Yeah. There's no payback period, <laughs> yeah. which is weird. <laughs> which is which is amazing. And, and, and just to kind of gut check with those numbers that you're seeing. So like, you said 215 for average order uh, or average spend in the first 12 months. That equates to roughly an average order that we're seeing from them, about $100. And the the easy way to just quickly look at their site and understand that is uh, typically you're going to see their scrub pants at about $48 and the scrub tops at around $40. I think it's like $38. So, you know, a set of their scrubs gets you pretty close to that average order right there. And they've got nice little uh, kind of groupings so that you can kind of get it in you know, you get your kind of package where it's like, hey, look, I've got an outfit. Boom. Yeah. And which, which, which is compelling, <laughs> which I think is compelling, you know, particularly as you know, like, all right, I'm going to wear this all the time. I'll buy one kit and and see how I like it. If I if I like it, I'll continue buying more. But it's it's a nice, easy way for someone to try something out um, when it's when it's your everyday uniform, you know? Absolutely. So we, we talked a little bit about the the leadership structure and the, and the co-founders, um, you know, folks that listen to the show know that inevitably, whenever we're talking about uh, a team, especially a founding team, like to dig into what we see in terms of 
voting structure for the business, like to take a look at what we're seeing in terms of employee feedback from Glassdoor and get a sense of beyond all of the awesome founding story stuff we're hearing about this business, uh, who's calling the shots and also, you know, what, what is the culture of this company? Right. We've got the, the two co-founders uh, and then this third person, uh, Thomas Tall, who's a Hollywood producer who invested about $65 million in 2017, kind of come in. And basically, this is similar to what we see with others, where if you're buying into this company, you're buying into them because what how they it gets a little little kludgy with with what goes where and who owns what. Uh, but they have basically they control the company. The, the group of those three, they have a voting agreement where they kind of back each other up on stuff and they own a controlling interest. Um, there are A shares, B shares and C shares. Uh, and there are various things. I think the B shares, uh, they all can kind of convert back to A. It might take 10 years for the B. Long, long way of saying it's, it's a, you're, you're trusting the two co-founders and the investor, Thomas Tull, to do what you want them to do. Yeah. And if you see their vision and you're bought in, that's a great sign, right? Because it means they're not going to have very many roadblocks in executing on their vision, at least internally. You know, whenever that plan meets the market, it's another thing. But you know that they are going to be able to exert their own strategic vision over the company. If you're less convinced, then then obviously that's a red flag. And, and we talk about this, you know, with, with most companies that come public, because especially if you're coming public uh, at, at a small enough valuation and you're a founder, um, you, you want to be in a position where you're going to control the destiny of the company. And more often than not, especially if you're really like a, a visionary leader, investors also want you to be in that position. Yes. And and frankly, I mean, yeah, if you're if you're in a founder-led business, you're you're betting on the founder whether they have controlling interest or not. And frankly, the fact that they keep control gives me some faith in the founder. Yeah, it, it means they're sticking around, right? And and that like they they have skin in the game. We love to see that. Um, and their financial interests are aligned with the company's financial interests, which are aligned with investor financial interests. Um, you know, if you have someone who's creating a category and and really uprooting the way an industry works, you want to see that thesis play out over time. And so, generally, I, I look at this and I say that's fantastic. L- love to see that um, they're going to be able to call the shots. And with a company of this size, I think they debuted around five billion or so. Um, founders and the executive team have an outsized impact on the direction of the business because of the size of the company. Right on. Um, so let, let's kind of oh, get to the customers. Maybe um, we've got we've got uh, 1.5 million active customers, meaning these are people who have bought once in the past 12 months. Um, now the, we always try to get kind of behind retention and whether it's a kind of a you know because ideally, right, if it's a big brand, you want people who are repeat customers. They say that 60% of their active customers were repeat customers, and they give kind of give some retention numbers. Uh, they say in 2020, we retained 75% of the 2019 prior cohorts net revenues, including 100% of the 2019 net revenues generated by 2018 and prior cohorts. Uh, I don't know how you're reading this, Dylan. Uh, it's... That, it's, it's a little it's a little confusing and and like yes. this is this is where um we we actually had a similar conversation last week where we were trying to unpack a retention number uh for a company we were looking at and basically anytime it falls short of something that is an easy comps figure it it can be confusing for investors because that's kind of what we're looking for with that with that cohort analysis and and i think we're getting something that gets close to this here i like seeing that they're able to create the repeat customers with with at least the majority of their active customers i i I think that that's a strong sign what's been incredibly impressive for me is the growth within their active customers they went from i think it's about six hundred thousand active customers um a year ago to i think it was like 1.3 by 2020. This is a company that has experienced massive growth. Ideally, you're enjoying that customer growth and you're getting uh, continued spend from your existing customers. That seems to be the case based on the numbers that we see here. I'd like for this to be stated in a little bit of a cleaner way though, Anand. Yeah. And I, I do give a little, um, because it's not it's not like a, you know, we talk about SaaS companies again, but where, where it's, hey, I've got my subscription. And then next year, if I don't subscribe again, I've, I've churned off. Whereas with clothing, you, you might be getting scrubs from five different manufacturers of clothing and you might love it, uh, but maybe it's two years later that you're going to buy buy something, in which case it would maybe count as churn, you know, in, in the traditional sense. 
but but hey, you love it and and that's fine. Or you're someone who just bulk buys and buys every two or three years and just gets ten scrubs. Yeah, what's what's so hard about that is non-purchases could actually be a sign of loyalty and uh, a satisfied customer, right? If yes. you if you're buying a ton of stuff in one year and then it lasts you for that year and then the following year you don't order anything, uh, that metric would fail you because you would say, well, there there weren't there wasn't any customer growth for that individual customer. The reality though is they they bought a lot of product and if it holds up and they're happy with it and they buy in year three, that's a very successful customer relationship. Yeah. And I'm going to guess it's like any other thing, especially brands that really resonate, where you've probably got some folks who have 50 pairs of scrubs, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then you've got other people who are like, you know, I have three and I just kind of, I wash them every few days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it just depends on how often you want to do laundry. Right. <laughs> it's probably what it comes down to. Hopefully uh, to, they're doing laundry. Yeah. <laughs> scrubs <laughs> to, are to, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> to put a couple more numbers to what's going on with their customer base, um, by the company's own count, uh, women make up about 83% of their customers, um, and roughly half of their customers are in that 18 to 35 demographic. Not terribly surprising uh, on the age demographic. I think they really are positioning themselves as a, as a bit of a millennial brand. It, it strikes me in a lot of the same way as what I tend to see advertised to me uh, on Instagram. Uh, and I'm 30, so I'm, I'm right, right in the middle. I think I've actually been advertised figs, uh, funnily enough. Um, and and to to put uh, just a, a sense of you know basically customer buying power, uh, approximately two thirds of the customer base uh, earn less than hundred thousand dollars a year, and one third of the customer base earn less than fifty thousand dollars a year. And I think the reason they call that out is when you get into some of these lifestyle brands and you start seeing some of these price tags, it's natural to wonder you know, okay, where's the sensitivity point with pricing? And is this an accessible product or not? And that, that, those are those are really interesting. And, and when you consider that it's kind of the suit for uh, a healthcare professional, so 100, 200 bucks for a suit, that's not that crazy. Yeah, particularly one that's more comfortable, wicks water away, um, you feel better in, you know, has, has, has a little bit more of what you're looking for in terms of pockets and storage and that kind of stuff. Uh, I get it. I totally get it. And I really get it when I look at the net promoter score for the company, because I think more than anything else we've talked about so far in terms of customer retention, uh, the accessibility in terms of price, this is the thing that sticks out to me as, yeah, this company is onto something. Yeah, they. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they got the net promoter score because I think you can, you know, depending on sources, as we'll see. But th they're claiming a net promoter score of plus 81. Now, anyone who knows net promoter score is gasping right now. Uh, so what it is is basically on a scale of one to ten, you know, they ask people how likely are you to recommend the company to a friend, and if you say nine or ten, company gets a point. If you say seven or eight, it's a push. Anything lower than uh, than seven, six and below is negative one. So the scale is negative 100 to positive 100. So they're positive 81. So if you interview 100 people and they're all they all say eight or nine or ten, that's 100. If they're all six or below, it's minus 100. And so for comparison, at least what I'm seeing on the internet is Apple 47 to 89, depending on the source. So you're you're in that Apple type of territory. Yeah, it's easy to look at a number like 81 and think it's a B minus, but I think that's actually an A plus. You know, because because you have to adjust your scale of negative 100 to 100, and it's it's really impressive. I I think it speaks to uh, how well they address the audience that they're meeting, um, and I think they're trying to engage that audience in a couple different ways. They're, they're digital first, and you see that in some of the initiatives the company has, particularly the ambassador program, where they're they're tapping directly into that awesome human demographic that they're meeting as customers. Yep. They've got that, and they, uh, you know, you actually can apply to be one. Uh, they they say on the application, please note that if your social media is private or missing, we won't be able to consider your application. So clearly, they're looking for influencers, right? Yeah, and I mean, I get <laughs> it. If, if you if you can organically create those relationships rather than have to broker them through agencies, why wouldn't you? You know. Yeah, and <laughs> did a quick sanity check on their social media, just in terms of Instagram followers, uh, just to make sure. Because, you know, I didn't want to see 10 Instagram followers, right? They have uh, over 500,000 Instagram followers, which compared to like, you know, Peloton only has 1.5 million. 
which was shockingly low. I mean, and and Lululemon, 3.6 million. So for scale, those are all comparable. Somehow Under Armour has 6 point, or not, sorry, 8.6 million. Um, so as most, you know, they've struggled a bit, but their scale, so it's not the be it and end all, but it, it does show that they're they're being savvy on social media and they're they're expanding their audience. I think one of the big questions for me looking at the company was, it, okay, it seems like they are delighting the people in their core market and they're showing really great customer growth. Um, how big is this market? Because, you know, as, as someone who doesn't work in the healthcare space, doesn't really know anyone that works in the healthcare space or would need to wear scrubs every day, I have truly no concept of how many people wear scrubs on a day-to-day basis. And I, you know, I had to kind of back myself away from my core assumptions here, you know, where I was thinking doctors, nurses, and start thinking a little bit more broadly about it. And I literally, in, in preparing the show, was Googling, like, who wears scrubs? You know, just, just to see, like, who I, was for, who I was forgetting here, right? And so you have, you have dentists, dental assistants, pharmacy technicians, veteran, uh, veterinarians, uh, physical therapists, and I'm sure a lot of other occupations that I'm leaving off the list. Um, the company estimates 20 million people working in the healthcare sector. Um, we mentioned that 1.5 active customer uh, it, it, it's hard to know exactly how they're pairing those numbers up. But the point is, there is a substantial amount of growth for them. There's a lot of customer acquisition in front of them um, if they are able to uh, offer a compelling product to, to the people that aren't currently using it. Exactly. And with that $5 billion market cap, you you know, and only about $300 million in sales. So that's a 16-time sales right now, you have to have a lot of growth for that to, to work out, even with their profit margins. And how they say they're going to grow was very compelling. So top level, you know, kind of getting to, to the Dylan thing of well, how big is this space? Uh, so basically, the healthcare space is the largest and fastest growing job segment per the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's great. Big and growing fast. So it's expected to grow 15% a year in the next, you know, from 2019 to 2029. So 15% versus 4% for overall jobs. And then in terms of that total addressable market, you're talking $12 billion in the US, which is under, um, under sorry, their current sales are under 3% of that 12 billion. And then you've got 79 billion globally. And both of those numbers are growing. So then they can also grow, they, so they can grow with the whole space they can grow by taking market share from other scrubs providers. Um, they can extend deeper into that lifestyle brand. I know I've, even though I'm not a healthcare provider, those scrubs did look kind of comfy, the, the sweat panty looking things. And I, 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 I could see maybe, maybe if this is one day a multi-bagger, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll force myself. Like if it's a five bagger, then I'll buy a set that, of scrubs. That'll be your something. treat for owning yeah. the shares, right? Yeah, <laughs> it'll be their treat. Yeah, <laughs> for that's providing right. me a five bagger, right? Yeah, um, it's a dividend of sorts, Anand. That's right. <laughs> and then international expansion, right? We talked about that twelve billion in the U.S., seventy-nine billion globally, which means the rest of the world is five x the opportunity in the U.S., uh, assuming similar uh, proclivity to buy these kind of high-end products. Um, and then the other one, which is kind of a big one for me, is other sectors beyond healthcare. So there's 40 million people outside the healthcare space that are in kind of service-based industries that have to wear uniforms. This is food service, hospitality, construction, transportation, that kind of thing. Probably not as um, kind of uniform as uh, as scrubs, right? But there's there's probably a pretty big opportunity there. Yeah, and, and even just looking at their site and seeing what they offer, I mean, I, I think footwear is probably a pretty decent growth opportunity for them as well because um, you have jobs where you're on your feet all day. You know, if, if you want a good shoe recommendation, talk to a doctor or a nurse, right? Like, you know, or a restaurant worker. Like, those are the people who are going to be able to tell you what's comfortable for eight to 10 hours a day. Um, so they have, I think, a collaboration with New Balance, but that's another opportunity for them as well. Um, I, I think there are some opportunities outside of, the core healthcare market or the core healthcare use case where, you know, it, you're expanding for what doctors and, and nurses and, and other healthcare providers uh, might wear from you outside of scrubs, moving into more traditional garments. 
I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. I think I, I highly believe that they can serve their core audience well with the core product. The expansion stuff is always going to be something I discount just because I've seen how hard it is for some of these other lifestyle brands to make that jump. Totally agree. For me to buy this stock, I want it to make sense healthcare only, right? Healthcare only, US only, perhaps even. Yeah, because then because then everything else is upside. Like if you if if you make it hard, and and I think this is where you're going with this. If you make it hard to make the bull case, and the bull case is still really strong, then all of the other stuff is gravy on top of it. And more often than not, some of that is going to materialize if it's a really quality business that has some optionality. Exactly. Um, all of the glowing reviews here aside, there are some risks <laughs> associated with this business. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, one, one of the big ones is this is an expensive product uh, relative to the rest of the market. I, I spent some time looking at other sites that aggregate scrubs. And so these aren't direct to consumer. Um, these are more like <laughs> scrubsandbeyond.com, which basically says exactly what it is, right? Uh, and Uniform Advantage, just kind of looking at their sites to see. They're aggregating stuff. They mentioned, you mentioned before Cherokee and Dickies, you know, being, being uh, major suppliers in that space. There are a lot of companies in that space. And for the most part, I was seeing stuff priced below what Figs is offering. For the most part, in the $20 to $35 range. Um, I was also seeing stuff that starts to look a little bit like Figs. Not in, not necessarily as as sleek and and modern as uh, they are designed, but getting at a lot of the same thing. Where it's it's more form fitting, more comfortable, less boxy. You're seeing more intentional pockets worked into this stuff, and you know this this would not be crazy. Uh, we've seen this story play out before, where there is a really uh, innovative company that that looks at a space with more intentionality that anyone else has. And then the competition catches on and starts doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, I know one which I think started around similar timing, but Janu looks like it's running a very similar playbook. That's J-A-A-N-U-U. Uh, it's venture capital backed, but definitely you, you quickly look at their website and look at Fig's website and all that kind of stuff. And th they're definitely going after the same thing. Yeah, and and you know when there's a good idea, money flows after it, right? I mean, when you're when you're posting the kind of top line growth that they are and the margins that they are, um, other businesses are going to pay attention. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised at all if you see industry incumbents even build more, you know, millennial oriented brands, uh, sub brands within their offering to try to compete there. Um, we've seen a lot of legacy retailers do that in other industries as well. Absolutely. And yeah. or little acquisition here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I, I mean, I think um, with with all of that, what's what's hard too. I, I can't help but make some comparisons to Lululemon with this company, um, in part because uh, the design is so central to why people buy it. These are not heavily branded scrubs, though, um, and in the same way that you know, like Lululemon and Under Armour, uh, we're offering a lot of patterned workout material. Um, the, the, the pattern is what made it cool. It wasn't the logo that made it cool. And that made it easier for other people in the industry to hop in. So I, I think if it's an aesthetic thing, they're going to have a harder time. But if the performance is there and that proves out, that's where you retain customers and maintain the space that you have as a leader in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, the, the performance and branding, it's all kind of, you know, I, I remember I, I knew a guy who would, who would wear a polo shirt every day. And, you know, I'd poke some fun out of it. He's like, no, no, these are the best shirts. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> they're far superior to any other shirt, you know. It all kind of feeds each other, right? You want at least the perception of, hey, this is the best brand or this is the best clothing or it performs the best. It's the most comfortable, whether the reality is the same or not. Yeah. And and, and one other thing I'll, I'll kind of throw out there is, um, you know, I think this is both risk and opportunity. Uh, and, and very often that's the case with a lot of these things is for the most part, uh, again, fairly similar to Lululemon. Um, the women's market is driving a lot of the results for the company. Um, by and large, the healthcare sector, uh, it's mostly women. So that's not terribly 75%. surprising. Yeah. So, so like those numbers stack very quickly. You realize why that, that 83% number is there. Um, the men's business could be a major growth lever for them, but it could also be something that is, uh, you know, unfulfilled. It doesn't, doesn't materialize in the way that you might expect it to. Um, so it depends on how you look at that, how you choose to discount that and how real, how realistic you think it might be. Um, 
but but one of the nice things on it is we we don't have to speculate too too much about the market reaction to this company because it's already public. This is a this is a prospectus show where the the company has already made its shares publicly available. Um, and and curiously enough, um, they were the pilot company for an IPO access program that Robinhood was working on. Correct. Yeah, it popped up on my phone and I saw it. And it, yeah, we were talking earlier and yeah, didn't didn't think anything of it because I saw five billion dollars. I saw makes hospital scrubs. Good night. You know, I was like, really, this is the first one you do and. Now I'm falling in love. <laughs> <laughs> and and for them, I think wonderful marketing opportunity. You know, we, we talk about the, the IPO uh, process often being a marketing event for businesses. And I think for them, you know, to say, we're a consumer brand. We know that we are, uh, a lot of our customers are folks who, you know, you, you heard those income bands before, probably have some disposable income uh, in addition to being customers, giving some of those people opportunities to be early investors a really nice story to be able to sell to investors and the market. Right. And it's also, um, it's a Shopify, you know, use the Shopify platform and on a Shopify site, they, they show figs as, as an example of, of folks who use Shopify. So it's, it's all, all nice. Now, the one thing on the, the Robinhood thing is you do wonder, you're worried about, you know, we talk about, Hey, waiting on an IPO, you know, because a lot of time, you know, you want to see the performance over a few quarters and, and Hey, they can be an initial pop that, that dissipates. That's something to factor in too. That hey, it's the first IPO on Robinhood. <laughs> yeah, could be a little hot, <laughs> TBD. Right there, there could be a little bit of enthusiasm around that. And 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 it seems like so far um, that the stocks had a, a pretty warm reception to the market. I think the IPO priced at twenty two, which was actually above the initial range that they'd been working through, and it is well above that now, trading uh, in the low thirties. We talked about it with the valuation on end. This is not valued like a retailer. I think so long as the growth rates continue to be really strong, it doesn't necessarily need to be valued like a retailer. Right. 16 times sales for that $5 billion. Uh, what does give you some comfort is just the profitability there that's already there and that gross margin. And so you talk about operating leverage as, as you go on, if they can maintain those kind of margins. Ooh. That could yeah. get interesting. I, I think it could. And and I think it sets us up well for, for folks that listened last week. Uh, we debuted the Stoplight Framework, which is your way of, of assessing companies and, and being able to give yourself an easy shorthand. Having walked through the S1 now, let's let's do that exactly. The, the first category you have here is the upside and whether or not you see this as a 10x in five to 10 years. For, for folks that maybe didn't listen to this show previously, simple rule. Red, orange, yellow, green, dark green, kind of signaling exactly how all systems go you are with that category. Yep. Dark green being the best, <laughs> yeah. red being the worst. Uh, so yeah, with that upside, the 10x, it's all, a lot of the things we've talked about. It's, it's the, I love the brand the, because brand meaning, hey, they can charge a lot. Those gross margins are indicative of how good the brand is if people are willing to pay those prices. And then that growth, and the execution that they're doing and, and how they've been kind of running the company. All of the operational things I, I've, I've really liked. Uh, but that valuation of $5 billion, you know, at $1 billion, I'd be dark green all the way. But I'll go light green for this one because of that. Yeah, I, I mean, they don't need to be growing at triple digit <laughs> top line year over year to be putting up pretty impressive numbers that are going to be... Um, satisfying a lot of growth investors that are that are buying to the stock there's there's a rich valuation here but like i think even if they wind up working themselves down into the high double digits uh fairly soon i don't think that that's going to cause you know screeching breaks on the growth story and that the valuation is going to be hurt too too much um i also I, I like with that gross margin um we talked about the profitability part of it but knowing that this is a purpose-driven company um, and one that I think is is relatively aware of its own space and the, and the realities of its customers, that also leaves a lot of money for them to do things that they think are simply good, regardless of whether it's you know what, what they want to be doing in terms of like you know becoming a more profitable business, becoming a more scalable business. It opens things up for them to be charitable, to be truly mission driven, because there's so much cash left over after they've paid the core costs of making the product. Exactly. So I mean, I, I think. To your point, uh, five billion is a little bit bigger than I thought they'd come to market. Um, <laughs> right. But but you know if if they become a category owner, it's not crazy to think of it as a multi bagger. Ten um, x, it's hard because I don't have a great comp for it. 
and and 10x might be a little frothy in the next five to 10 years. But if in going through that exercise, I think they fall short and it's a three or five X, that's a wonderful return. Yeah. And to, to that point, a 10x, right? If it was an immediate 10x, they'd be bigger than Lululemon. That's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, I, I think I think it's tough, particularly when they're they're dedicated. What what I think the the pro and the con of being a real dedicated provider is the market opportunity is going to be smaller, so you have some competition, but you don't have competition that's nearly as deep pocketed. The con is it unless you can find some really interesting growth avenues in adjacent markets, that TAM is going to be your TAM. You don't run into as much optionality as maybe some other retailers might. Um, so the second criteria you have here on it is downside. Basically, how low is the floor? What does a worst case scenario look like for you? Um, pretty pretty strong response from you here too. Yeah, it's it's also light green because it's already profitable and cash flow positive. Uh, you know, amazing for a company growing like they are. Uh, you know, there's brand risk. They've they've had a marketing snafu or two in the past, uh, and you know there is uh, I think a lawsuit from one of the. Uh, for unfair business practices from one of the um, kind of old line uh, folks, you know, who are who are in the entrenched space. Uh, I haven't looked too deeply into it, but it's not all that surprising, right? You know, that you're going to try anything to kind of thwart an upstart. Uh, but all of those are are, are potential risks. Um, but again, it's it's printing money, which is it good. is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and it's nice to know that you can look at a business and say, I don't need to squint too hard to to figure out what this thing looks like in the future. We have a pretty decent sense of what a more mature version of this company looks like. The financials are probably pretty similar. It's just that the top line's bigger and the bottom line's a lot bigger too. Um, you know, you, you might see them go and, and spend some more in marketing if they want to try to take advantage of the, the publicity moment that they're enjoying right now. And with those customer acquisition costs being where they are and the return on investment being there, I certainly wouldn't fault them for doing that. But even with all of that, it's an incredibly strong and healthy business for how young it is. And I mean, I just took a quick look over, we didn't do this earlier, but just kind of looking at, you know, the, the debt and the cash position they have. Uh, as of March 31st, 74 million in cash. Uh, their liabilities, just taking a quick look here, seeing if I can find it. Um, oh, there's no debt. No debt. So, so there you go. I mean, that's why I can't uh, find it. Yeah. This, so, so looking for it on the line items, trying to scramble here as we're taping. But yeah, I mean that that's that gives you a ton of flexibility as well. You know, they're, they're able to plan long term and not having to make interest payments uh, really lets you control your own destiny. And I think that was pre-IPO, so I think there's a little extra money in the coffers too. More cash on the table. Always yeah. a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it was that um, investor uh, Thomas Tull selling his shares, but but I think some did come to the company too. All right, so Anand, your third criteria is the wow criteria. And uh, this is, as you subtitle it, the most important thing. You want to explain that a little bit before you break it down exactly uh, how it applies here for figs? Sure. Uh, and by the most important thing, well, I guess it could be two things, right? The <laughs> most important criteria, maybe. But it's also just, yeah, what's that one thing you're telling people you know, when they say, why, why are you buying a scrubs provider? And for me, it's it's the brand, right? The amount of, you know, beyond all that we've talked about already, just the amount of anecdotal, my relative or my friend loves them from kind of trusted people on, on, on Twitter. Uh, I know, I know. But <laughs> a lot of people I know in real life too. But these are people who don't own shares. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times you get stuff from people who own shares and uh, you got to discount that a lot. Um, but just... Just the kind of love, uh, you know. I think one of our, um, one of our, uh, I think it might have been Matt Frankel. I think his wife is a healthcare provider as well. I, I think he was saying like he gets that weekly box from Figs or something close to that of <laughs> something, right? That's yeah. that's powerful. Yeah, and and the numbers back it up, which I think is huge, right? Like you can be sold the story of the direct to consumer brand, but if you're not seeing it come through in the retention and the top line growth and the customer acquisition um, and, and taking more and more of a market, especially one that they are, you know, pitching themselves as disruptors in, then you start to question it. But I don't, I don't really see anything that disrupts that narrative looking at the S1. No. And so I think, I think that's a pretty strong wow factor for me. And if there's, if there's a single point, I think you could duke it out between the net promoter score of 81 and the top line growth yes. of 130 plus percent, you know, being whatever that wow factor is. I, I like for that to be a stat so that I, I tie it to something that I can kind of keep an eye on over time. I know we all have our different barometers for those things, but those are, those are the wow moments for me with this business. 
And I don't know if we said the color, but dark green for me. <laughs> if you didn't see me effusing or hear me effusing. <laughs> um, and then your fourth category, how excited are you to own it in 10 years? And, and where do you where do you clock in here? Uh, light green again. Uh, so if the valuation were lower, uh, this would be dark green as we were talking about. Uh, but otherwise, you know, as we're researching this, you know, I was getting really worried uh, coming to this uh, this podcast because I just kept wanting to do more research. And then, you know, it, you know, once you do too much, but like, that's such a great sign if I'm excited to do more research instead of just, yeah, yeah, I get it, whatever. But once you're kind of doing SEO searches on premium scrubs, scrubs, you know, nice scrubs, and kind of seeing where they go in relation to other ones and what kind of marketing they're paying for, things like that. Um, by the way, side thing, they, they have some room to grow on the SEO side on, on that, that front. You know, I think they were on the second page for, uh, uh, premium scrubs or nice scrubs or something. Uh, but that, that's an upside, but, but basically, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty darn excited. And, and your final criteria on it is the confidence level and your ability to assess. And, and where, where do you check in on this? This is where we get out of the green <laughs> and into the yellow. Um, so given that I hadn't heard of this company before Robin had featured it as an IPO, um, and and even then I kind of just dismissed it until now. Um, and that they're a you know a physical goods maker. Uh, you know, it's it's well, a physical goods maker, it's easier to kind of assess, but also you're relying on brand that one one bad marketing campaign or one one controversy could just really ding you, or one imitating um imitator who just does it really well and then a second and a third and and a and a, a you know Cherokee or Dickies kind of gets in the game more. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm not as confident. Yeah, in the consumer space, I'm always going to provide a discount on myself if I am not the core user for the product. And and sometimes that means I'm taking a pass on something that winds up being a wildly successful investment just because I, I'm not the core user and I don't feel like I have a good enough finger on the pulse here. Um, in this case, I mean, the, the numbers are so strong, I'm willing to overcome that. But it's always it's always helpful to at least give yourself a moment of pause there. Yeah, if I was the doctor my parents wanted me to be, I'd be at least light green. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm glad we got to kick this one around. And I have to give a shout out to listener Nate, who put this one on my radar. So we we owe the show to Nate, really, because I I think I pinged on and being like, hey, do you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, And it it was only from that listener email. So um, yeah, thank you, Nate. And and shameless plug, uh, if you have something you want us to hit, industryfocus at fool.com. You can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. And Anand is incredibly active on Twitter. Anand, what's your handle in case people want to get in touch with you? At Anand Chalkavalu. So easy. So A-N-A-N-D-C-H-O-K-K-A-V-E-L-U. simple. A-N-A-N-D-C-H-O-K-K-A-V-E-L-U. <laughs> Anand, I will, I will see you on Twitter if I don't see you uh, on Zoom earlier. Thanks so much for Absolutely. joining me. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on! Fool on!